Welcome to Talking Gardens with me, Stephanie Mann. My guest this episode is garden designer Sarah Price, best known for co-designing the planting for the Olympic Park for the 2012 Games in London. Trained in fine art, she's brought her dreamy, naturalistic aesthetic to designs for Maggie's Cancer Care Centre in Southampton and Horatio's Garden in Cardiff. Having previously won gold twice at the Chelsea Flower Show, this year she's returning with the Nurture Landscapes Garden. I went to her own experimental home garden in South Wales to find out more. If there's a place, a landscape or a place from around the world that you were so inspired by that you would have to take a little bit of that for your fantasy space, is there somewhere that springs to mind? Yes, definitely. The Picos de Europa in northern Spain is like a plantsman's paradise. I went there shortly after designing my 2012 garden at Chelsea. So it was early June and we were staying quite high up on a mountain ridge, but I would just open the doors and step out and at your feet would be bee orchids and, um, I mean, probably 10 different species and you'd walk down the lane, 10 different species of orchid and you'd walk down the lane and see the plants like Solomon seal and Estrantia and violas growing amongst asphodeline. Again, more orchids, violas, buttercups. It was just extraordinary. It was like someone had just gone around the UK's gardens and just plucked different species and just put them all together growing in close proximity. I think it's the extreme altitude, it's the limestone that creates this biodiversity and the way you know, it's it's hard for cars, machinery, all the hay meadows are still maintained in the traditional way. You've got this Atlantic and Mediterranean kind of climate buffering up against each other. So just incredible. That's the Picos de Europa. That's between France and Spain, is yes, that right? Yes, in northern Spain, yes. Lovely. And so there's gorgeous sort of alpine meadows. Alpine meadows, yeah woodlands. Great walking country. Amazing walking country, huge cave systems, really unspoilt. And if there was, we've, we've talked about landscape, but if there were gardens, you know, sort of more cultivated space that you were inspired by, that you felt sort of influence the way that you work, that you would want to include a little hint of that inside your dream garden, what would you think of? Well, it has to be the heme parks or habitat parks in Holland, which were set up to really save wildflowers in the 1920s and 30s when agriculture and was intensifying and, and the land was being drained. So the most famous examples of these habitat or heme parks are just outside Amsterdam in Amstelveen. And um, like the Tizer Park, for example, is very famous. And what's incredible is, you know, you can take a 10 minute bus ride from Amsterdam and arrive in this suburb, get off the bus and you see very nice houses, just simple modern houses. But then you can disappear between them into this other world, into they call it kind of like a, an enhanced nature because the parks were designed to heighten nature, to almost look at it like a picture and then exaggerate the swathes of flowers like devil's bit scabious that purple haze that you might see along the edge of a water or again orchids on mass or 
heather growing under the white stems of birch trees. So they're kind of designed to create these pictures that you walk through and experience and spaces are quite narrow in between houses sometimes. And then they'll open up into this amazing lake surrounded by royal ferns or smunda regalis and cotton grass and swathes of poppies. So it's 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 sort of like hyper stylized, yet it's really intensively gardened. It takes seven years to become a fully trained team gardener. But, but it feels incredibly natural at the same time. So I think they're just there almost selectively weeding out thugs and allowing this kind of incredibly rich, biodiverse landscape. It sounds like, you know, you're, you're the two places that you've mentioned so far, you know, you've got the sort of wild alpine meadows and then, you know, yes, this enhanced nature, but but definitely very naturalistic. And you're known for your naturalistic planting style. It's something you're quite drawn to, I assume. You know, we're not going to see you making very neat clumps in double herbaceous borders anytime soon, I assume. <laughs> no, I'm not. And I've always loved flowers. I've always loved plants. But I, I think, um, you know, when you see, for instance, outside in my garden now, there's loads of crocus and they're open and you go down there because of the purple. They've, they've covered a third of the lawn, which is a large lawn in purple. And it's really intense. And then you walk outside and you see they're open and buzzing with pollinators, with honeybees. And that's incredible. It's that you sort of forget how when you create a biodiverse garden, it becomes alive with nature. And that really kind of always brings you into the present moment. And I think that surely must be one of the reasons why we love gardens, because you kind of you're really in the moment when you're your hands are in the soil or you're you're looking at the way light comes through a tree. And is there a garden that, you know, gives you that sense, you know, maybe you visited or that you would tell people, oh, you really should see this place? I really want to give an example that's been created by two artists that have a good eye that I don't know. I assume they're fairly knowledgeable about plants, but not massively so. I could be wrong. But I went and stayed at uh, Airbnb once years ago in Pembrokeshire and the place was called Tea Class, which means blue house. And I was really bowled over by the garden because um, it was made out of quite a flat landscape, although you could see kind of the crags in the distance. But the whole of the garden pretty much was, was turned into meadow. And the materials in the garden were very simple, like gravel or some slabs quarried locally from the land. And there were a few box plants, but they were kind of planted haphazardly. You could tell they were planted small. They weren't pruned. There were a few shrubs and they were kind of toperized, I suppose. But essentially it was against this backdrop, this kind of fuzzy backdrop of meadow and quite wild hedgerows. And there was also a, a big pond that had been dug. And so, of course, you then get reflections and an island with with foxgloves growing on and red campion. So you'd get this kind of purple shimmer in the in the water. But it was wonderful. It was a magical place because it wasn't precious and people had made something special using everyday materials and not spending a lot of money. But it was okay. They'd contoured the land. So there were like sort of low buns around the house. And they'd made sure again that you could step directly from the house into the landscape, that you, you had that connection with, the huge kind of pond in front of you. And I know sustainability is very important to you. That sort of idea of, 
you know, reusing that you've just been talking about that you admired in that garden. Um, and that's quite a big focus for your Chelsea garden that's coming up this year for 2023 for the Nurture Landscapes Garden. Yes. You were saying to me before we started recording that it's it's quite a challenge actually to to always put sustainability at the forefront, I assume, especially with a show garden. It is a challenge because when you do any show garden, you know, ultimately it's not going to be sustainable, but we can do our best to make it have as low a carbon footprint as possible. Initially, we wanted to measure the carbon footprint of the garden. And I was talking to different structural engineers who are really passionate about trying to put a figure on construction. But it very quickly became apparent that there wasn't enough data for gardens and for landscapes. And that really the most sensible, pragmatic approach is just to source locally and to reuse and repair where possible. So the garden this year will be on the art and craft of garden making. And we've almost created an imaginary corridor between crocus who are building the garden based in Sunningdale and the showground itself based in Kensington. And we're looking at that kind of transport corridor really to find waste materials that we can or reclaimed materials that we can um, construct the garden out of and just trying to minimise transport. And what's the story of the garden? What's your sort of theme or aim to get across your message with the garden this year? Well, the garden initially was inspired by Cedric Morris's garden, Benton End. And Cedric Morris was a renowned artist, a painter, famous for his paintings of the flower paintings, really iris paintings, still lifes. And he was really unusual because not only did he create these gorgeous paintings where you could really see that he understood the plants that he was painting, you know, they're quite unusual muted colours or sometimes they'll be like yellows against pinks, against purples, against moody blues. But he also actually was an incredible gardener who influenced Beth Chateau. Um, You know, he would go to the Mediterranean in the winter and collect plants and bring them back to his garden in Benton End. And he would breed irises. So he would have thousands of iris Germanica seedlings on the go. And he introduced sort of 90 different cultivars and won many prizes for them. He also had, together with his artist partner, Let Haynes, they established a famous painting school at Benton End which I suppose its heyday was in the 50s. So people like Lucien Freud, the painter, figurative painter would have gone there. And contemporary painters like Maggie Hambling went there. So it was a really um, bohemian place, place of intense creativity. And people would bring their easels out into the garden and paint. So the garden was a kind of cornucopia of different species of plants and really influential, I think, Beth Chateau, said she was blown away going there and they had a Cedric and her had a had a real dialogue about plants it's it's quite exciting I believe that with the garden museum now it's it's being sort of restored or renovated I'm not quite sure exactly what we re, re, reworked reloved reimagined <laughs> um at the moment isn't that right I believe there's a, a new head gardener and and with hopes to open it to the public again yes. at some point in the future it's really inspiring because it's a mature garden and you can see it had so much love, yet it's been kind of left. 
and what you have are these incredible carpets of bulbs and now and it's and also that sense of mystery you know you've got old trees and Rosa Cedric Morris climbing up and you know rampant and so you've got that kind of mystery of an of a slightly neglected secret garden and that's what you're using as your inspiration yeah, for your Chelsea garden yeah and also all the plants that he bred you know these moody gray poppies and irises with their mutable colors which are really hard to describe kind of coppers and strange off yellows and gray purples and it's really exciting to have that palette to compose with. But speaking of design, um, is there a sort of design feature or element or something that you feel you you maybe don't have now in your garden space that you would really love to have in your dream garden? It's really it's this is a really simple one, but I would love to step directly from my house into my garden because at the moment I have to go down two flights of stairs to get out. And so that sensation of just, you know, opening your kitchen doors and stepping straight into the your garden space would be definitely, <laughs> it's very practical. <laughs> but I suppose it's to do with the atmosphere and the experience of it, isn't it? It's, it sounds practical, but actually it is. It's the connection, yeah. the direct physical connection. So when you go and see clients and they have that, you're thinking, oh, I'm so jealous. I want this for myself. Yeah. You want to be able to step out into your garden in bare feet, which, you know, sometimes I do in the winter, but I have to, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's more of a journey. And I think there's something incredible about Japanese gardens where you can just, you know, I dream about having a house where maybe the moss comes inside. It's in a different climate and you can just walk straight out and be in the, in the landscape. Sounds gorgeous. So you've told us so far that your dream garden would have that gorgeous sort of alpine meadow feel, that sort of wild space of the Picos de Europa in Spain. You've said that it would have a touch of that enhanced nature on steroids sort of feel of the Heme parks in the Netherlands. Yeah, maybe. I I don't yeah, the nature on steroids is a strange phrase, isn't it? But um, just carpets of bulbs, and I do, I do love the intricacy of plants that I've kind of naturalized together or growing together. The ecology, and where there's that, that kind of that tension of what plants gonna win or win out, or there's that kind of competition, I suppose. Well, we've talked about the places um, that you have been inspired by. But if you had to choose someone to share your dream garden with, maybe someone who would be your head gardener or a designer or someone from history, is there is there a person or people that you feel you would have to have in your dream garden? It would definitely be children because maybe children not playing football <laughs> but children yes a lot of listeners just went what <laughs> <laughs> but children who just really I just I feel that gardens come alive when there are loads of children running around playing hide and seek and maybe that comes from my childhood when I was lucky I could go to my grandparents garden with all my cousins and we could explore and jump and hide and you know just I just felt incredibly free freer than I ever felt anywhere else really and it's that imagine you know children see things they're wowed by things they're not scared of getting on their hands and knees and crawling under 
tunnels of rhododendrons, you know. So I think it just brings, you know, laughter and that exploration and making, even though there can be a sense of destruction alongside. I That would be really wonderful. And, you know, I'm kind of used to also seeing lots of children just running around tarmac play playgrounds. You know, maybe there'll be one tree. So I think when you do see them in a garden that has that sense of discovery, it's, yeah, it's, it makes you happy. Yeah. And you have two of your own. Do you find that they're able to access that kind of childhood feeling that you talked about, about being free? You know, when you moved down here to Wales from London, is that sort of part of the idea that, you know, as a family, you could kind of have a, a, a more nature focused lifestyle definitely and they you know ultimately I think they take it for granted now but when they have friends over and because we've got a large garden and there are tunnels and there are trees and yes huge swathes of bulbs at certain times of the year which the kids are really like wow it's yellow or you know it's it's wonderful to see them really relish the garden and I think it always really comes alive when you have when children have friends over or cousins or other children to play with I think a lot of listeners as children are probably thinking about how how do you how do you keep them well behaved you talked about the football but how do you stop them from running through the planting (laughs) what's your secret I know I I think I think they know that certain you know when the crocus are out on the lawn it's precious I'm kind of lucky I guess they know it means a lot to me and there's space and my son isn't massively into football. <laughs> that always helps. You don't need to have the goalposts. No. And, uh, <laughs> I think so. <laughs> to find a corner for the trampoline, yeah. possibly not. Yeah. <laughs> and in this dream garden of yours, is there, we haven't spoken about plants and plants are so central to your work. Is there a plant or a group of plants that you feel, oh, I couldn't live without those in my dream garden? Or, oh, well, I don't grow those. So maybe that'd be something that would be nice to to play around with. I, I couldn't live without bulbs, naturalised, bulbs that naturalise. I just think it's a mystery. And, you know, they come up, whatever. They're so tough, yet they look so fragile. And, you know, if it, we've got huge cyclamen head or refolium under old trees you know they're the size of saucers they're incredible and they're so robust as well so I couldn't live without bulbs but having said that part of me has a fantasy about living for a couple of years in somewhere like Arizona and really like shaking myself up and like having this different hard bright light to deal with and how would that influence the way I design you look at Louis Barragan's spaces with his walls and blocks of colour and you look at Steve Martino's plantings with cacti and prickly pear and I would love to see how I would compose with plants in that situation. Sort of pushing yourself in a completely different direction, learning a whole new palette. Yeah, I think pushing myself, absolutely. I think I would struggle to have a jungle garden when I was traveling in Central America. I didn't feel that infinity with the jungle that I feel in I don't know, European olive grove, because essentially, you know, you can relate it back to your the, the woodlands in Britain. I think the sense of light and maybe the prospect, the kind of openness and shade. But somehow, yeah, the bleakness, the starkness of maybe like a shingle beach to garden or a 
yeah, a desert oasis. <laughs> that would be really interesting. So Sarah, you've told us that your dream garden would have elements of the nature of the Picus Europa's beautiful alpine meadows and a touch of the lovely enhanced nature of the Heme Parks in the Netherlands. It would have that lovely feeling of recycling sustainability, gardening on a shoestring, sort of wild around the edges, made with love, like the tea glass Airbnb garden that you stayed at. And it would have children running around and having a great time. And very importantly, you could step out from your house directly into this gorgeous space. There might even be a little corner with some desert planting to just try your hand at something new. But if there was something else, one last big thing that you felt your fantasy garden would have to have, what would that be? Oh, it would be sunlight. It would be getting the first rays in the morning and the very last rays of sun in the evening. So I suppose it would have to be perched up somewhere quite high to get the last of the sunset because light, it doesn't really matter what space you have, light can transform the most ordinary space. And for that reason, it would have to almost be, I'd have to almost garden it like a, not like a painting, but I'm thinking about the way certain painters capture those moments of kind of liminal light, like Peter Doig, a contemporary figurative painter, or he, he paints these abstract landscapes. He's Scottish, but he's lived in Canada and Trinidad. And the light is sort of, there's a slight shimmery rainbowness, and there's big trees and wonderful expanses of water that reflect that light. So I suppose you could think of Monet's water lily paintings, or you could think of Winifred Nicholson's small still lifes of a bunch of spring flowers with rainbows coming off from a glass next door to them it's it's that 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 transformation quality of light and yeah that also places you very much in the here and now I suppose a bit like children running around the garden you know and there's that sense of ah I'm not going to go in and cook the supper because I need to sit here and just soak up the last rays of light and look at this this view I mean live in this painting exactly <laughs> live in the painting because you have a fine art background isn't that right yes how does it, your journey from that into to gardening how did that happen for you there's a lot of gardeners and garden makers who who've got a f- art background I think I I know I, I was always an observant child so I was always looking at plants I can remember all the plants in my playground at school there weren't many like Wydelia and putting and um, Hypericum and silvery Aspen I remember looking up and so I, I just thought it was normal to sort of have this connection and this kind of to observe plants in great detail and I suppose I was lucky in that my grandmother gardened though I didn't work alongside her much and my father he had an amazing allotment which I did spend and help a lot of time and help him on And then I loved art, but I also felt that my work at art school was disconnected with everyday life and that it was very hard for people to feel connected to, I suppose. And that the white cube space of an art gallery wasn't nearly as exciting as being outside and having to kind of work with weather and the seasons. And and there's something amazing about 
instead of putting paint on a canvas and then you stand back and you think, oh, those are my marks that I made. When you plant a border of perennials, you put the perennials in and you have a good idea of what's going to happen, or maybe you don't, but there's, it's, there's something that always surprises you. And, you know, you have less sense of control. You've got the geology and bedrock, the weather, the seasons, the, how the garden's looked after. Um, there's so much mystery. There's so much challenge in making gardens. And that, that really drew me. But having said that, fundamentals of composition, of colour, of space, that's transferable. And if I asked you, since we've been through all of the things that you would definitely have in your dream garden, what you would never allow through the garden gate, what you would say, no, not having that in my garden and it shouldn't be in any garden. What was, what's your pet hate? What's your bugbear about gardening? I love walking down roads and peering into people's front gardens. They're like, um, I don't know, like a just can be so creative, especially I think in an urban environment, people really toperize and do quite unexpected things. But what I hate is when people rip up the front gardens and just put a car park down, tarmac. It's just really sad. You know, I'd, I would, when there's no like little centimeter for, <laughs> for weed to grow or anything that I just find that incredibly sad. So you encourage everybody to keep your front garden with a little, at least some planting, something for wildlife. Maybe think about gravel instead exactly. of tarmac atoms so that we don't have so many flooding issues, a little bit of permeability. Yeah, absolutely. Plants can live in, I mean, creatures live in gravel. Yeah. <laughs> you know. And if I gave you last two things that you would have to have, not only in your dream garden, but in your own garden that you just feel have to have those last two things quick fire round two things you couldn't live without water because there's a real alchemy in digging a hole and filling it with water and seeing the reflections and the life that it attracts and it's something I've only really started to play with in a big way in the last few years of my career so definitely, you know, create a huge pond, create a natural swimming pool, or if you've not got the space, just a saucer of water is magical. Reflections, light, I suppose it goes back to light again and nature. The second thing would be definitely trees. And I think people are scared to have trees right up close to their windows or their houses. But actually, we forget how important the vertical space of a garden is and how even if you've got a postage stamp space you can have climbers that soar upwards when I was growing up there were I was in a garden that was just surrounded by laurel hedging and I felt really trapped looking up and seeing the aeroplanes going by but if in that garden there had been trees the experience of that space would have been very different trees with clematis going up and it's amazing what bird life you can observe as well so yeah trees and thinking about the vertical space of your garden and how you can create a sense of framing and enclosure without cutting out the light. And the last thing. This is um, really, I think, a really important thing in a garden is to have a place you can lie down. So it could be really mossy, but sun, sunny. You can get lawns, which are kind of mossy, but in the sun or spongy. So you can lie down and really relax <laughs> or like a massive slab of 
like stone that just soaks up the sun and you can really there's something wonderful about just relaxing in the sun and stretching you're um, a basker aren't you you like to bask <laughs> i would like to you bask more <laughs> than i do that was sarah price who's designing the nurture landscapes garden for the 2023 rhs chelsea flower show this may thank you for listening to talking gardens brought to you by the team behind gardens illustrated you can subscribe to the magazine and enjoy lots more plant and garden inspiration at gardensillustrated.com. We're taking a break from recording for a little while, but we'll be back soon with special episodes for the Chelsea Flower Show, with new conversations with the top show garden designers dropping every day of show week. Follow us to make sure you don't miss an episode. Listener.